And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, five, or five. Welcome, listeners. I am Jason Kleberg, and you're listening to the Force 5 Podcast, a show that has a guest come on every week, and they are forced to come up with a movie-themed top five list, which we then talk about on air. One of the best movies I saw in 2020 was a film called The Kid Detective. I've got a full review up on the website if you want to read up more about that, and today I'm honored to have the director of that film, Evan Morgan, joining me. We're going to talk about our five most rewatchable films. I'm super excited to pick his brain a bit about the kid detective. It's going to be really fun. But before I get Evan on the horn, let's talk about a couple of things that I watched this week. All right, I'm going to start with uh, the one I didn't like so much first, and then we'll roll into one that is just awesome. Okay, the one I didn't like first, Hitcher in the Dark from 1989. Hey, you want to ride? Yeah, can you take me to the first bus station? Sure. Get me here! Stop it! Stop it! Uh, let me go! Let me go! You bastard! Don't move, or I'll kill you. Throw me the key to the camper, quick! I said move! Hitcher in the Dark is about an unimposing psychopath with horrid listening skills and worst social skills who picks up hot blonde hitchhikers in his daddy's Winnebago, drugs them, dresses them up like his dead mom, tries to bang them, and then ultimately kills them. When he picks up Daniela, he doesn't expect that her boyfriend Kevin would go on a one-man mission to find her. Actually, I didn't expect that either since he didn't seem to want Daniela very much before she got kidnapped. First things first. The title Hitcher in the Dark makes zero sense, seeing as we only see him pick up three hitchhikers and they're all in broad daylight. What follows is less like a horror film and more like a psychological drama between this psychotic named Mark Glazer and this girl that he kidnaps, Daniela. It feels less like the Hitcher and more like a very, very bad version of Psycho. Daniela is played by Josie Bissett from Melrose Place fame, A woman whose hobbies include dancing at the park and repeatedly bungling escape attempts. The amount of times she tries to escape and then subsequently fails in this film is comical. Her boyfriend Kevin begins this thorough search for campers in America's party capital, Norfolk, Virginia, based on a lead from a dirt bike do-rag who was on acid when he saw her get into it. Oh, and the only reason she was hitchhiking to begin with is because Kevin was trying to bang one of her friends and Daniela angrily broke up with him. I guess sometime that day he realized that he had lost something really special because he doggedly pursues her, only stopping to stare at some tits when he takes a quick break to check out a wet t-shirt contest at the beach. Way to go, Kevin. Aside from the hilariously bad dialogue and a few effective moments, including one in which Daniela tries to get someone's attention outside by knocking a vodka bottle off of a table as it smashes at the exact moment someone else smashes a window, the film is a slog. It's a collection of very stupid, wow, that was a close one, moments of civilian and police ineptitude that drifts towards an ending with a final shot that is among the worst filmed final shots I've ever seen. I can only imagine the director's choice in filming the final shot that way. You know what people who watch movies really want to see? Pictures. 
make sure to stay long enough for the moronically out-of-touch scene in which Kevin, a white male, decides to break into a camper owned by an African-American and their totally believable fight. Hitcher in the Dark was a tough movie to stomach. It's a mean-spirited, repetitive slow burn until it finally peters out with a silly-ass twist that you'll see coming a mile away. Vinegar Syndrome advertised this one as an ultra-violent mix of suspense, thriller, and action. Unfortunately, the disc they sent me seemed to be missing most of the violence and all of the action. The film looks nice, restored from the 35mm negative, and includes a commentary track with film historians and authors Sam Digan and Kat Ellinger, as well as an archival video interview with the director Umberto Lenzi. Tough to recommend this one, though. All right, let's talk about one that I've, I've been waiting to, to talk about this one on air. Uh, Lorenzo Lamas, staple of C-level movies, C-level action movies back in the day. I remember watching movies like The Snake Eater on VHS. You could always find his tapes in stock at Blockbuster because nobody wanted to rent them but me. And uh, before he was like becoming a Trump supporter and being this like guy who started all these Jesus movies, he made his magnum opus in 1997's the Rage. Two reckless FBI agents. I can and I will fire you. A desperate serial killer in search of revenge. In his eyes, Uncle Sam committed treason against him. We need a list of Daisy's potential targets. Secretary of Defense, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Speaker of the House. A final showdown you'll never forget. I got a message for the rest of you feds. It's Judgment Day! The Rage is about an FBI special agent, Nick Travis, yes, Lorenzo Lamas, and he's trying to catch a deranged serial killer alongside his new partner, Kelly McCord. Their search leads them to the forests of Utah, where the scenery is beautiful and everyone, even the cops, has a Mac-10 for some reason. The pair then has to battle a group of angry Vietnam vets, other officers, and of course, their hormones. Now, admittedly, I watch a lot of movies that by all quality control standards are flaming piles of shit, but once in a while, you stumble onto some gold. Well, call me a leprechaun, because that's what I found with 1997's The Rage. From the opening scene, you know this one's going to be a barn burner, as the well-dressed, sexist FBI agent Nick Travis and his inept band of goofy, overzealous badges try to stop a man in a van from kidnapping a girl. Immediately, they open fire on the van with dozens of guns in the middle of a town street as Lamas and his dim-witted partner give chase. His partner keeps shooting from the passenger side of the car as they're chasing the van through a park filled with children. Lorenzo Lamas yells, be careful of those kids, but neither one of them really gives a fuck. He's just blasting away. And later on, we see the van, the back of the van. There's not a bullet hole in it, so who knows where all those bullets landed. God, they must have left bodies and bodies in that park. They chase the van straight into an afternoon rodeo where they allow this thing to plow through the crowded bleachers, turning it into a fireball that definitely caused more civilian casualties. And that's the first five minutes of this film. And Lorenzo Lamas, bless his heart, he's trying to act. He's trying to shed tears for his undying love for the FBI, but his range makes it seem less like a devastated man and more like a Cincinnati Bengals fan just watched their team lose again at the end of a two-win season. But shortly after, you realize you don't give a fuck about Lorenzo Lamas' lack of acting because Gary Busey enters the frame. He plays Art Dacey, an ex-military wacko with a mutilated dick whose plan is... Shit, I couldn't even tell you what his plan is. He's a Vietnam vet and he's mad about something. 
He's introduced while he's making out with a woman who wears a variety of wigs for some reason and has smeared lipstick all over Busey's face for some reason, as if he's preparing for some kind of Native American ritual. And then we get a second car chase, as a giant logging flatbed diesel driven by a bootleg version of WCW's General Rection takes on Lamas and Kelly McCord, his new female bureau babysitter. As the truck gives chase, it blares its horn, completely ruining the art of surprise, but when it smacks the back of Lamas' car, he turns around, looks at the truck, and says, What the hell was that? Gee, I don't know, probably the big truck you're staring at in the rearview mirror, Nicholas Travis. It's amazing he solves any crimes at all with that big brain of his. During this scene, they even leave several shots with unfilled green screen outside of the car as it goes under the truck Christmas vacation style. All that said, this scene is awesome and it ends in a really cool way. The scene starts setting up the relationship between Travis and McCord, of course, which starts as a playful will-they-won't-they they situation and just ends as a come-on-fucking-get-it-over-with already. The rest of the film is a cat-and-mouse chase as our two mind hunters try to track down Busey and his pack of yokels, who continuously gain the upper hand on these stupid idiot agents but still aren't good enough to finish the job. Busey is in full cocaine crazy town mode with awesome lines like, The more words you use, the closer to death you are. And, You want war? I am war. Cocked and locked and a robot. <laughs> what? While hollering about his ability to get a hard on. A fun game while watching The Rage might be trying to calculate Agent Travis's bullets shot to actually hit ratio, which is probably less than 1% since he can't hit a goddamn thing unless it's standing directly in front of his gun barrel, and he spits a ton of hot lead in this film. In fact, there's a scene in which a Jeep Wagoneer is basically doing circles around a cluster of armed FBI agents who are giving it all they got, but they can't hit a goddamn thing aside from an innocent bystander's car that flies into a trailer home and presumably wins a giant lawsuit somewhere down the line. The last action set piece is a boat chase because, well, it's Lorenzo Lamas and it's probably written into his contract. It's a long chase and it's honestly pretty fucking sweet. How it ends is utterly bananas and features a man fully engulfed in flames waving an axe around. Face Off also came out in 1997 and this boat chase, I'll be honest, way more entertaining and features a lot less doves. The explosions in this scene and frankly the entire movie are amazing and there's a ton of them. The Rage from 1997 was a blast. It's filled with all kinds of stupidity but I was fully entertained the entire time. You probably could have swapped Lorenzo Lamas with a crash test dummy and gotten a similar performance, but everybody else, they left it on the field. Cloak as McCord really tried with the garbage script she was given, but Gary Busey is the real hero here as the dickless psychopath Art Dacey. Go watch The Rage. It's not on Blu-ray. I don't think it's on Blu-ray yet, but you can probably snag a copy off of like Amazon, or I'm sure the film's on YouTube. Go check out The Rage, or just go to YouTube and watch like some of the car chase clips. Man, fantastic. Just such a blast. It's almost Evan Morgan time, but first, let's give some space to this week's sponsor. All those explosions in The Rage left Utah smoking, but if you're into smoking, make it a red apple. But I don't smoke, because that shit'll kill you, so let's hear it from someone who does, the star of Nebraska Gym, and red blood, red skin, Rick Dalton. Hi, this is Rick Dalton, better known as Bounty Hunter J.K. Hill, speaking on behalf of Red Apple Cigarettes. 
Red Apple comes factory rolled for the best drag with the best tobacco flavor with less burn on your throat than any other non-filtered cigarette. <laughs> well, that's the way a cigarette should taste. Hmm. Better drag, more flavor, less throat burn. That's the Red Apple way. So look for this life-size standee of me, Jake Cahill, wherever fine Red Apple tobacco products are sold. Take a bite and feel all right. Take a bite of a Red Apple. Tell him Jake sent you. All right, this cigarette tastes like fucking shit. And by the way, who chose this photo, all right? I have a double chin, all right? Nobody notices that crap. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. Joining me tonight, 2,603 miles directly to my right in Toronto, Canada, we've got Evan Morgan. He's an actor, a writer, a director, probably most well-known for writing the film The Dirties back in 2013 and then writing and directing one of my favorite films of 2020, The Kid Detective. Evan, how's it going tonight? It's going great. Thank you. Man, you've come a long way since uh, Don't Wake a Mummy. I guess. <laughs> it's debatable. <laughs> I don't know. Uh... <laughs> Before we get into The Kid Detective, what are some of those favorite films of yours that might not make our list tonight? My favorite film is The Truman Show, and it has been my favorite film since I saw it uh, back in 1998. I, I actually, I don't really watch it very much anymore just because I, uh, I watched it so often um, after it was released. <laughs> I think I, I went, you know, for maybe a full year watching it like every other week. Um, I sure. was so, you know, impressed with it. And it was a real kind of turning point for me in terms of my interest in filmmaking, which had begun, um, with, you know, an interest in acting and, uh, uh, and it was the Truman show where I was just first really sort of struck by the screenwriting and the directorial choices. And it was, I would say the clearest sort of inspiration for me, really kind of changing gears and, um, thinking about you know movies from the perspective of a, of a writer or a director and uh and yeah so I, I i have a very special relationship with that movie um some of my other favorite films you know so many of them are from that year 1998 because i would count the thin red line as one of my favorite movies as well certainly my favorite war movie and uh the big lebowski one of my favorite comedies of all time also from 1998 some older films that i that i really really love don't Look Now, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> <laughs> was That was the original, you know, like revelation for me where uh, I was watching that film and I was like, holy shit, like I've, I've just never seen anything that's moved me this way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, still and, a classic. Yeah, just, just amazing. Off the top of my head, those are the ones that sort of rushed to my mind. All great choices. The Kid Detective is like this perfect balance of comedy and mystery and noir what were some of your inspirations when crafting that film you know mo most of it was based on uh what i was reading and when i first had the idea for the movie um i bought a bunch of encyclopedia brown books which were actually not really a part of my childhood oh, awesome. i'd never read one before um and was only loosely familiar with the character but very familiar with the archetype 
And so I just plowed through a bunch of those and the world of the Kid Detective, the original world that we're introduced to in the flashbacks is very much based on that kind of sort of wholesome and insulated community. And it's the same type of community that you find in like Nancy Drew, this sort of perfect kind of suburban backdrop for these, you know, ordinarily very wholesome mysteries. And, um, and so that was the first inspiration. And at the same time, I was kind of like balancing it with uh, a heavy diet of Raymond Chandler. And I, I, I read, I think, three Raymond Chandler books in the first few weeks while I was you know, starting to come up with ideas for the plot of The Kid Detective. Um, and it really just refreshed the whole kind of like all of those detective tropes for me. Uh, and I really, really love those books. And they're, and they're so funny, which I wasn't expecting. So much funnier than the film adaptations that have been done. Just like the, the first person um, prose are just like incredibly just <laughs> ridiculous. And uh, some of the descriptions are, are just, you know, like I, the type of book that you read and you're smiling and then you're like, oh, people are going to look at me and notice that I'm enjoying this too much um, if you're reading it in public. <laughs> but uh, so those were great. And then in the back of my brain, as well. Um, the further I went, the more I started thinking about Chinatown in terms of just okay, well, what, what is, you know, what, what, what is the kind of sort of the most familiar, you know, film reference. And for me, it was Jack Nicholson in Chinatown with like the bandage on his nose in his sort of dusty PI office with like his receptionist and um, people waiting for him. And he arrives like these are the things that that, you know, uh, felt the most sort of familiar to me and available when I was thinking about the kid detective. Um, and then, of course, the kind of the sort of Humphrey Bogart, Philip Marlowe, Sam Spade, which is very connected to Chinatown <laughs> in, in terms of just, you know, when those stories are set and that uh, prototypical detective character. So those were in the back of my head. And uh, when I was finished with the script, I started to think a lot about Blue Velvet because again, it's another very sunny, you know, seemingly idyllic backdrop that, you know, they, they, they you know, David Lynch sort of digs into the, the darkness lurking beneath the surface and um and our story does something similar and both that and chinatown uh feature a convertible with you know the male and female protagonists driving around and you know visiting different places and talking with different people and so those became the big points of reference if not earlier in the development of the story then certainly you know after i finished drafting it and was thinking about it more in terms of the um the aesthetic and I will say, with respect to the aesthetic of the Kid Detective, you know, we we made a choice ultimately that it wasn't going to be like a very contrasty detective film with like lots of characters in the shadows. You know, it it was going to be a kid yeah. detective film that dealt with you know much darker subjects and sort of hopefully felt like it existed between those two worlds of Encyclopedia Brown and Philip Marlowe. But the kind of the uh, the North Star for us in terms of the world that we wanted to create was kind of like Nancy Drew, Encyclopedia Brown, brighter colors, darker subject. Well, I think you definitely nailed it. If we're looking at top five rewatchable detective films, the kid detective would probably make my list. Of course, today we're talking about five most rewatchable films. Um, why did you choose this topic for the show? What was your inspiration behind that? I think because I noticed... Um, I'm rewatching more movies than I'm watching movies. <laughs> like, like I just find it, it, it's partly this last year. And um, the fact that I was, you know, 
for the first half of this year, at least extremely busy with trying to finish the kid detective and extremely tired. And I always find that, you know, at the end of the night, if you're hoping to wind down or relax, at least I am more inclined to put on something I know I'm not going to finish something that, you know, I, I already have seen and that you know, have a relationship with rather than watching something new, which requires more attention. And ideally, you don't want to be breaking it up. And so I just noticed that I was consuming way more like, you know, content that I already had, had viewed than stuff that was fresh and new. And I started to feel a little bit guilty about that and then realized that a lot of people were kind of having the same instinct uh, or inclination during the lockdown. And I guess, it, you know, it's, it's just there's something comforting about the familiarity of a, of a film that you already, you know, have seen, um, you know, exactly what you're getting. And again, there's not the same pressure to really provide it with the same amount of focus and and it doesn't feel as uh you know as bad to separate it into one or two nights um and so that that was why i chose this particular theme and then of course the other reason is is i just find that there's something so strange about the movies that i'm tempted to rewatch rarely are they the movies that i love love you know exclamation point agreed and i think there's something interesting about that like where you know with on the occasion that I watch a movie and truly love it or am blown away by it and, or, and, and have a very sort of like special reaction or experience, maybe there's a part of me that just doesn't want to, you know, pound it into the ground and overdo it and uh, dull that, that memory and that, or, or you know, dull, dull that experience. And with films that I have a more complex relationship with, maybe I didn't love them the first time out, but I, you know, I'm tempted to, to revisit I just find that that you know you see things that you didn't see before, and sometimes you come to a you know a, a new appreciation. It's just interesting what I, I just find it interesting what you know I'll, I'll add to the queue the moment that it like appears on Netflix or you know anywhere else. Sure. Where I'm like, oh, that's available. I'm probably going to rewatch that. Like you know, and there it, it's not typically the films that you know I would put on my best of the decade list or maybe even close to the top of my best of the year list. They're just movies that, for whatever reason, call me back in. Yeah, I had a lot of fun going back and thinking about this list as kind of a comfort food list. Those movies that if I saw them come up on TV, for example, I'd have to watch them through. But I just like you, I wouldn't feel bad working and having one of these films on in the background because I've seen them so many times that it's not like I'm going to miss anything. They're just kind of there for me much like uh, The Office TV show is for a lot of people. Sure. You put those on in the background. It's the same way. Yeah, I think I've rewatched that about three times. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it's the truth. And also my my partner and I, um, and we just had a child as well. It's like, it is harder to find the energy to, to you know, like watch something that's completely fresh. And oh, we're know. also, you know, we'll, we'll like turn something on while we're at like having our lunch. And uh invariably that thing is is either going to be like a comedy television show or um a movie we've already seen and once you start it then you find like you're more tempted to finish it and i think that's another reason why i've just rewatched so many movies <laughs> yeah well congrats on uh on being a new dad oh thank you he's three and a half months oh wow so super new <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Very cool evan morgan let's get to the list you know what's gonna happen Five. 
most rewatchable films. What's your number five on your list of the most rewatchable films? I'll start with a slight disclaimer. I um, was overwhelmed by the number of movies that I just watched to death, particularly when I was a teenager <laughs> and in my 20s. Sure. And, uh, and so all of my picks come from 2020 or sorry, 2010 or thereafter. Um, because there, again, like I, I didn't want to compare the movies that I find myself rewatching now, which tend to be movies that were made within the last 11 years with movies that I watched, like when I was younger, like fight club, I've probably seen know, 20 times. And, um, uh, obviously the Truman show, as I mentioned, and like just, you know, home alone and all of these classics that, uh, <laughs> like that these newer films probably couldn't compete with in terms of the number of times I've watched them. So I fenced it off and I was like, all right, you know, anything after 2010, uh, is fair game. And then that allowed me to kind of reduce the list. But uh, my number five is Black Swan. He promised to feature me more this season. Well, he should. You've been there long enough. And you're the most dedicated dancer in the company. Our new swan queen, the exquisite Nina Sayers. And Lily, you're going to be amazing. I watch the way she moves. Sensual. She's not faking it. Seduces! Attack it! Attack it! Come on! It was a movie that, unlike some of the others on my list, like, really blew me away the first time I watched it. And uh, I think I liked it even more the second time. Um, it's short. Uh, I think it's, you know, something like 100 minutes. And um, for whatever reason, it's one where, yeah, every time it pops up on Amazon or Netflix or wherever, I add it to the queue and I'm like, okay, I know I'm probably going to end up watching that one night. For me, what I what I really love about it is um, it's such a, like, it feels like such a kind of more contemporary take on the sort of Polanski style psychological horror film, um, whether we're talking about like The Tenant or uh, Repulsion, it's scary in kind of the same way um and of course like the climax of it is just so loud and brash and um you know just incredibly staged and uh it's it's one that i feel like i i continue to appreciate more and more the more that i watch it which is rare i think sure it's the only movie i think that could make ballet look really awesome to me <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> i know uh, it, it, it's just like, it's, it's so much fun. Like, you know, despite the fact that it, it's a story of a person's, you know, ultimate psychological breakdown, it's, um, it's just like, the, it's just so much fun. Like the, the relationship with the mom and her intensity, um, is just a blast. Like the whole, you know, backdrop of their apartment and all those portraits of her, of course, the way they tease the sort of, you know, introduction of the rival and she thinks she sees herself, but it's not, it's Mila Kunis. And, you know, it, it, it's a movie where like the kind of thematic structure of it is um, like so much a part of the plot. Does that make sense? Yeah. There's so much to admire about it, obviously as like a technical feat, but um, it's also just like such a well-conceived and well-written movie. The only thing that I don't love about it is, uh, is just how um, wild it gets, I guess. Like how oh, wild the fantasy wild. becomes in terms of like Winona Ryder like stabbing her face with the scissors, <laughs> like or whatever it is. It's the I don't know if they're scissors or not, but uh, or letter opener. It's a letter opener, um, and yep. uh, like 
you know, it, it, it sort of tips over at a certain point where it's like the hallucinations are, are just so wild and crazy. And she thinks she's killed Mila Kunis, but then she hasn't. And um, I think I prefer it prior to that point where all of the kind of surreal elements uh, they, you know, they, they, they just feel so earned and, um, you know, the breakdown feels so incremental. And then it's when it sort of spills over that I, 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 I kind of find myself like not being as engaged, but then by the time she's on stage, um, I'm just totally in awe of what's going on. This is one that I feel like I need to go back and rewatch because I think I've only seen it one time and that was when I saw it in the theaters. So it's been 11 years for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's crazy how much time has passed since then. I, I, I would guess I've seen it more than 10 times, which would mean once a year. That's Black Swan from 2010. I kind of split my list up into different moods. So I find like when I'm reaching for these comfort food films, it depends on the mood that I'm in. So I picked an action movie, a comedy, a holiday film, one that I would watch with my wife, and then one that I would watch with my son. So that's kind of how I split it up. Cool. I will tackle the comedy first because this is probably the one that I've seen the most times just in general, and that's Wayne's World from 1992. <laughs> you can't beat Wayne's World in terms of comedy. So essentially the, the story is Wayne, played by Mike Myers, and his best friend Garth, played by Dana Carvey. They run this local talk show from Wayne's Basement and then this hotshot advertising exec played by, oh, just played to perfection by Rob Lowe. He has plans to make this show a national hit, but he also has eyes for Wayne's girlfriend, Cassandra. I grew up in the, uh, in the 80s. Back then, VHS, that was all we had. They were expensive, and you couldn't get them everywhere at first. So I don't know if you had the same experience, but we just basically had a, like a handful of VHS tapes that we would play over and over again. Oh yeah, absolutely. I remember they, <laughs> they did a promotion at McDonald's where uh, if you bought like, I don't know, a adult dinner or something, they gave you a copy of Wayne's World or Ghost. <laughs> and oh, wow, yeah, what a selection. <laughs> it's a real Sophie's <laughs> choice for sure. I, uh, I, I, we ended up getting them both. And man, I, I just destroyed those uh, tapes, both great movies. This is like the first VHS tape that we played until it was unplayable because they weren't like discs. Like these things had a shelf life. Yeah. I had no relationship with Saturday Night Live. I had no idea that it was a Saturday Night Live property when I started watching it. And I'm I, to be honest, I'm not even sure why my mom bought the film because I, I don't think my mom was a SNL viewer either. This movie has so many layers of comedy with jokes that I thought were hilarious when I was a kid. And then when I watched it, when I kept watching it and I got older, there were tons of jokes that I finally got as an adult, which I think is the, the sign of a great comedy film for the whole family. It just has jokes for everybody, uh, much like The Simpsons. And I remember it being the very first movie that made me aware of corporate sponsors because they have this timeless scene with corporate sponsors. The fact is he's the sponsor. And you signed a contract guaranteeing him certain concessions, one of them being a spot on the show. Well, that's where I see things just a little differently. Contractor, no. I will not bow to any sponsor. I'm sorry you feel that way, but basically it's the nature of the beast. Maybe I'm wrong on this one, but for me, the beast doesn't include selling out. Garth, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's like people only do things because they get paid. 
And that's just really sad. I can't talk about it anymore. It's giving me a headache. Here, take two of these. Ah, new print. Little. Yellow. Different. Look, you can stay here in the big leagues and play by the rules, or you can go back to the farm club in Aurora. It's your choice. Yes. And it's the choice of a new generation. Every character's great. So many great jokes and so many lines that I can still like recite from memory today. Wayne's World from 1992, definitely one of my most rewatchable comedy films that I can go to at any time. And Sean Aguilar, if you're listening, Wayne's World 2, not good. Wayne's World is the one. <laughs> I, um, I, I think the last time I watched it was maybe eight years ago and was like just blown away by what a masterpiece it was <laughs> like and just oh, it how it, it's so good yeah the, the whole like uh breaking the fourth wall and uh you know the alt endings and just like how um like the rules of that movie are are just so unique to that movie it remains so so funny i i, I haven't seen two in a long time but i do remember liking it as well um but not as much as i liked one that's the right answer. That's the correct <laughs> I remember liking answer. Kim Basinger's role in number two quite a bit, like that whole subplot with Garth. Uh, number four is Inside Lewin Davis. What'd you say you played? Folk songs. Folk songs. Solo act? No, I had a partner. Threw himself off the George Washington Bridge. George Washington Bridge? You throw yourself off the Brooklyn Bridge, traditionally. George Washington Bridge. Who does that? If I had wings, I'd know as dove. I'd fly the river. Explain the cat. What's its name? I, I don't know. It's the Gorkhine's cat. It slipped out and I don't have the key. My honey. Ooh, Coen Brothers, cool. Yeah, you know, the Coen Brothers are probably my favorite. Um, you know, working filmmakers, I, I, I find that for me, they're just the most consistent. And I love the fact that, um, you know, you can recognize one of their films immediately when you hear it. Um, but yet they're still working in so many different genres and like the spectrum between uh, Hail Caesar and, you know, the Big Lebowski, you know, all the way over to No Country for Old Men. Like, it's just, I, I just love it. <laughs> and, and Inside Lewin Davis is like not one of my all-time faves of theirs. It is the one though that, again, once it pops up, I'm like, okay, there's just, I, I submit to watching it within the next few days. Um, there's just something about, I guess, the world of that particular movie that is um, inviting and like comforting and easy. Obviously the music is great. and um, it's like an incredibly unique and memorable character. Every time it pops up, I end up watching it. I always, I always find the the road trip. Um, I think that they're going to Chicago. Uh, that's the part for me where, yeah, like I, I notice I start to disengage a bit. Like I, I love how that concludes. Um, you know, the scene where he plays for F. Murray Abraham, but I don't love the John Goodman um, stuff in the car. And the, the sort of cyclical nature of the story is, you know, clever, but doesn't move me <laughs> in terms of like the way that the film concludes. I get it and I love it for the character. Um, but the only reason I, I, I'm kind of nitpicking about these movies that I love is, is just because, again, it relates to the question of like, you know, what is it about these films specifically that makes them kind of like 
like I, I, I just don't get tired of them. <laughs> and and yeah. this, this has that quality where uh, I enjoy it just as much or more every, every single time that I sit down with it. I could have added a ton of different Coen Brothers films to my list. One of the greatest compliments I ever got was on a, uh, I got feedback on a screenplay once and, and both readers said that it had a, the feeling of the Coen Brothers and that was like the best compliment I've ever got. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, it is the best. Uh, it is the best compliment. It's odd the difference between like something like The Big Lebowski. I may have watched too many times when I was younger, and so I'm less inclined to turn that on now when I see it's available. But then Barton Fink is another one that I probably watch like every other year. I've seen it for sure more times than I've seen The Big Lebowski, and I'll just keep going. And I don't really know <laughs> yep. why. And I, I, again, for the same reason as Inside Lewin Davis, I do think that there's something about the world of those particular stories, the fact that they're period pieces, the fact that uh, you know they're comedies in a way, but but that's not the motor of the films. You know, that's that's not what's sort of driving the story. I think that is what makes them so rewatchable. Whereas when you're watching like film like The Big Lebowski, where, yeah, it's one of the ones where I, I probably know, you know, almost every line. I'm not going to laugh <laughs> the same, you know, the, the, the same way on like the 20th <laughs> viewing, whereas watching Inside Lewin Davis or Barton Fink or, you know, some of the other Coen Brothers ones. Um, I just love living in that space. Hudsucker Proxy is another one for me where I've watched that movie so many times just because I love living in that particular space. Um, and I can't yeah. get tired of it no matter how many times I, I you know, revisit those films. Uh, my number four I'll go with my holiday one. So I think holiday movies are some of those that a lot of people find rewatchable because you turn them on every year and try to get those same feelings. And I could have put a bunch of different holiday ones on here, but I got to go with my favorite, 1989's National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. The third in the National Lampoon's Vacation series, but it's by far my favorite one. Do you have Christmas movies that you watch every year? Uh, well, we'll watch Home Alone every year and, okay. uh, we'll watch Die Hard every few years, probably. Uh, we, Christmas Vacation is one of them for sure for me and my family, my sister, especially. I think those are the big ones. The Christmas Vacation and Home Alone for sure were the ones that were the most a part of my childhood. I've rewatched this every single year for as long as I can remember. And it just never gets old. And as you get older, it becomes even more relatable, especially now that I've married into a big family and you have these like family Christmases. If you haven't seen Christmas Vacation for some reason, it's about Clark Griswold. He All he wants for Christmas is to host a family Christmas. So he has this cast of characters who were invited and some who weren't invited to descend on his household for a week of fun. There are so many visual gags here that land for me. It's a great mix of like really smart writing and extremely over-the-top visuals. It continues so many of the gags from the Vacation series. Chevy Chase and Beverly D'Angelo are just pitch perfect as the main couple. And then Randy Quaid comes in and just nails it again as Cousin Eddie. So many memorable scenes with him, so many great lines. I always find Christmas can be super stressful, but you throw Christmas Vacation on and it just kind of makes all of that melt away when, when I watch it during the, every single holiday season. Uh, hey, if any of you are looking for any last-minute gift ideas for me, I have one. I like Frank Shirley, my boss, right here tonight. 
I want him brought from his happy holiday slumber over there in Melody Lane with all the other rich people. And I want him brought right here with a big ribbon on his head. And I want to look him straight in the eye, and I want to tell him what a cheap, lying, no-good, rotten, four-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood-sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, dickless, hopeless, heartless, fat-ass, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotty-lipped, worm-headed sack of monkey shit he is! Hallelujah! Holy shit! Where's the Tylenol? Yeah, I, I couldn't have a list of my most rewatchable films without having Christmas Vacation on there because I, I just get so excited when it comes on every year at Christmas time. Like, that's what makes me feel like, all right, this is the holiday season. Yeah, that's definitely one where if it's on, I'll, I'll watch it all the way through as well. <laughs> all right, uh, number three for you. All right, so, okay, this is where things get a bit more complicated for me in terms of, like, my <laughs> my feelings about these movies. In a weird way, I almost love these films in the reverse order with the possible exception okay. of the last two um the you know like among the, all the movies that i'm that i'm listing black swan is for sure my favorite i would say that inside lewin davis is for sure my second favorite this is the most recent movie the first time i watched it i w- i wasn't in love with it really <laughs> and uh you know i liked aspects of it but i it was not what i i guess was expecting and i had some uh issues with the ending which which persists today but uh it's once upon a time in hollywood Cut! embarrass yourself like that in front of all those goddamn people all right what's the matter partner it's official old buddy well has been on august night and the leaves hanging down and the grass on the ground here i am flat on my ass who, who i got living next door to me I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. Oh, I love this movie so much. Um, so I, uh, my, yeah, I, I, it's, it's been sort of like a uh, slow building affection for me with this one. I, I really love Quentin Tarantino. And again, much like the Coen brothers, I just love um, the particular tone and like the world of, of his movies. And again, the fact that, you know, it takes you five seconds to recognize that you're watching a Tarantino film. You know, the first time I watched it, I, there were, there were, there were, you know, things that I appreciated and, you know, jokes that I laughed at. And um, obviously the sequence at the Spawn Ranch was extremely suspenseful, but I think I was most kind of like struck by the lack of urgency. (laughs) You know, I wasn't expecting a day in the life type of movie at all and <laughs> yeah, it's um, a hangout movie yeah for real and and i was just so not you know not primed for that that like you know i i wasn't as engaged i was just very aware of the fact that, like oh wow this movie is, is in no kind of hurry you know and um um particularly when you when you know or at least you think you know where it's headed maybe that assists with the sense of impatience turning this one on again i just enjoyed it so much more you know now that i knew what to expect again the, the 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 fact that it was you know not in a hurry is now the thing that i appreciate the most about it like the ideas that i find the most amusing or the most even like impressive are the really low-key moments in the film where it's like the two characters um you know brad pitt and Leonardo dicaprio's characters are watching his episode of fbi and just commenting on it <laughs> in real time and that's the shit that I love about it the most is just like the fact that, 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 yeah, that like there, you know, it truly is a day in the life 
you're just sort of invited back in time with this movie. And I also find that the characters and the performances for me become so much funnier each time I return to it. And it was the type of movie where, like, it was divisive, I recall, at least among my friends at the time, where some people really liked it and some people really didn't. And uh, I sort of sat in between. I liked it more than the friends that I watched it with, um, but then less than some other people that I was chatting with. Uh, it's one where, you know, uh, since it's become available on, you know, television and on streaming services or whatever, I, uh, uh, I've turned it on so many different times, either with my lunch or at night or whatever, and watched it all at once, watched it in pieces. And it's just so easy, so warm, um, at least until the end. <laughs> then it gets real and warm. It's so funny. Like the, you know, the, 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 the stuff with, uh, with Bruce Lee and the stuff with DiCaprio in his trailer and, um. Uh, uh, and even when he's learning his lines in his swimming pool, like there's just so many little things that um, really stood out to me upon rewatching. And even though it's only been out for uh, what less than two years, I guess I think I've probably seen it. You know, oh God, close to close to maybe six times, seven times at this point. Uh, and that is why it had to go on the list. I'll say that I still don't love the ending, um, just because I feel like it's kind of equivalent to what he did with Inglorious Bastards. And, and and that just makes me more aware of the author and the filmmaker than I generally like to be, even though one of the things that's so you know appealing about Tarantino's universe is the fact that it's so distinct. For me, it's like that point every time I watch it, I'm like, uh, it seems a bit forced that they're suddenly deciding to go and like kill DiCaprio. And, you know, and, and if they wanted a natural reason to do that, like, why don't they just recognize Brad Pitt from the ranch? And then that at least feels organic in terms of the story that was being told and not, you know, you're not relying on one character convincing all the others randomly to go and, you know, change the victims or, you know, to, to change the plan. Right. Um, and so I, I just don't love what it takes to get there. And then the violence, while it's, like incredibly <laughs> like i guess it's it's almost comically horrifying oh yeah totally i find though that it's like it's different watching like hitler getting riddled with like you know machine gun bullets <laughs> and watching these like brainwashed teenagers getting their brains bashed in on a phone it's like they're not really equivalent you know what i mean and like i can't <laughs> sure. quite enjoy it i guess like the same way uh um but the blowtorch is certainly uh, a great payoff <laughs> and uh and then the last shot is amazing i absolutely adore this film it has one of the most suspenseful uh tarantino scenes as well the the spawn ranch scene is just masterfully done suspense yeah it, it is it, it, it is uh amazing i mean the thing my, one of my friends pointed out is that it is it is still strange that like you're being teased you're being teased you know is Bruce Stern dead is Bruce Stern dead no he's not he's alive he's okay you know like everything they've said is actually true <laughs> he's obviously being yep. taken advantage of but you you the first time you watch it one of the reasons it feels so suspenseful is because you're thinking oh they can't let him get in that room because obviously this guy is you know he's 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 dead already right and they're just living off of his land and the fact that he's alive it's like oh okay well <laughs> all right and then they're also simultaneously teasing going and getting this character, the, uh, what's that dude's name? The guy who's playing Elvis now, uh, Austin Butler. Tex is his name in the movie. They introduce him and they're like, oh, go get Tex, go get Tex. Like once Brad Pitt's in the altercation with the other guy. <laughs> and then Brad Pitt drives away, like before the dude arrives. And, you know, yeah. again, they don't really cash in on it later in terms of the motivation why they end up in Leonardo DiCaprio's house rather than uh, Sharon Tate's. So it's again, it's like, oh shit, like these are my hesitations, but at the same time, it is just so 
great. Like, like in a way, like it doesn't matter that you've been teased and um, led astray. From yeah, what you yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, that's a good choice. And uh, I'm, I'm sure if we did this list in 10 years, that would probably be that will probably be up there because I will watch it over and over again. I actually own four different versions of it on Blu-ray and 4K. Right oh, wow. Now. Yeah, I have a sickness. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My number three, I'll go with the the film that is my go to if my wife and I are in the same room and want to watch something that we don't need to pay attention to, but is still it's just an amazing comedy. It's from 2004 Mean Girls. I'm 16. Until today, I was homeschooled. And then it was goodbye, Africa. And hello, high school. Hi, I'm Katie. I'm Janice. This is Damien. Watch out! New meat coming through! This map shows the school's central nervous system, the cafeteria. You got your cool Asians, burnouts, jocks, the greatest people you will ever meet, and the worst. So you've never been to a real school before? Shut up. Shut up! I didn't say anything. Plastics. Who are the plastics? They're team royalty. That's Karen Smith. She is one of the dumbest girls you will ever meet. I'm kind of psychic. Really? It's like I have ESPN or something. Gretchen Wieners. She has two Fendi purses and a silver Lexus. And evil takes a human form in Regina George. She knows everything about everyone. That's why her hair is so big. It's full of secrets. We want to invite you to have lunch with us. Regina seems sweet. Get in, loser. We're going shopping. Uh, the writing in this is just so smart and so funny. It's an adaptation. Uh, the screenplay was written by Tina Fey, who is also a teacher in the film. Some great lines for her. The cast is is awesome. Lindsay Lohan has never been better as this perfectly naive homeschooled girl. And then uh, the plastics, they're all just so funny as this kind of idiotic bunch of sheep. But of course, the, the standout, in Mean Girls is Rachel McAdams as Regina George. She is so diabolic and such a cruel villain. I'm so used to seeing Rachel McAdams play the the protagonist role, and this was just such a fantastic change of pace. She's amazing in Mean Girls. If I ever have to pick my top five like most quoted films, this will definitely be on my list. It has so many great lines. And as somebody who just has a weakness for teen high school comedies, this might be one of the smartest of the bunch. It's got shades of like Ferris Bueller in there and The Breakfast Club and all, all these amazing John Hughes teen comedies. And it's just put into the early 2000s in, sh- in such a smart way. What, what a great film that is. They're, they're all amazing. That whole, like all of the plastics and Lindsay, and Lindsay Lohan, I mean, it's the movie is just really like perfectly cast up and down. It's just so great. And again, it has such a specific universe, which also feels familiar. Like I can definitely relate to aspects of it. In fact, it was shot at my high school. So par- maybe that's partly why. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's one of my fa- <laughs> favorite high school movies too. All right. Uh, on to number two for you. Okay. All right. As I said, my relationship with, with these movies gets increasingly complicated. <laughs> I didn't choose the subject so that I could complain about like about, about films. It's just, again, it's interesting to me that the movies I watch the most are not the movies that I have the purest relationship with, the ones that I just, you know, up and down, you know, love. Number two is a movie that is like extremely beloved by, you know, uh, the majority of people. I didn't, respond to it the first time I watched it and again it's one where you know I've come to appreciate it more 
and more the more I revisit it, but it doesn't explain the frequency with which I've revisited it. And it's the social network. Do you think I deserve your full attention? I had to swear an oath before we began this deposition and I don't want to perjure myself, so I have a legal obligation to say no. Okay, no. You don't think I deserve your attention? I think if your clients want to sit on my shoulders and call themselves tall, they have a right to give it a try, but there's no requirement that I enjoy sitting here listening to people lie. You have part of my attention. You have the minimum amount. The rest of my attention is back at the offices of Facebook, where my colleagues and I are doing things that no one in this room, including and especially your clients, are intellectually or creatively capable of doing. Did I adequately answer your condescending question? You know, I, I, again, it's like, why, why have I watched this movie so many times? <laughs> I, I think that it, it is, again, you know, similar to these other ones that we've you know, discussed. It's about the particularity of the world. And again, it's, you know, the stakes are, I, I suppose, kind of high when you consider the age of the characters, certainly, in, you know, in comparison to Mean Girls. But um, the stakes aren't super high. You know what I mean? Really, it's a film about a friendship more than it is about someone amassing a fortune. The structure of it is the thing that I appreciate the most, which is why I believe, you know, each time I watch it, I, you know, appreciate it more just the way that the story is laid out, you know, using these depositions, I guess, or whatever the meetings are with the lawyers as a, uh, as a way of like framing the events of the past and the relationship between the dialogue of those scenes and the things that um, we're seeing, you know, depicted, like it's just extremely clever. And uh, I, I think that another reason I probably return to it so often is the the relationship between Mark and Eduardo. You know, if anyone, for anyone who's had like a close friend that was on, you know, in some ways that relationship is is challenged by a rivalry, which is I think you know the case with most close friendships when you're young. The more you identify with someone, you know, the more kind of competitive that relationship can become. And so the things that bond you kind of divide you. And these are, of course, like two guys who are not super, super popular, who are kind of dorky. And, uh, you know, the framing of that story, you know, about like one of the biggest sort of cultural phenomenons and, and, and one of the fastest sort of internet success stories, you know, the way that it's framed as much more of a story about like two friends undone by that competitive instinct who, you know, one ultimately betrays the other. Like, I think that that aspect of it is, is relatable and tragic and powerful. The biggest problem I've had with the movie is I just, the, I, 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 I love Aaron Sorkin. Uh, I don't love, love it when he writes young people so much. Uh, and um, particularly because I am the age of the characters in the film, uh, it's like, it never really rang true for me. Um, you know, the kind of like the particular witticisms, the obviously the rapid fire dialogue is very much his thing, but it, uh, it oh, was yeah. a major turnoff for me and remains kind of a turnoff for me. I don't really like like any of the characters in the film. And, you know, I know you're not supposed to really like mark but i think you're probably supposed to like eduardo more than i do <laughs> i just i just i i i, I, I there, there isn't a single one of them that i find i really relate to uh you know it, it's much more i guess about the idea of you know a friendship being undone and and that's kind of what i'm connecting to and then of course the very fincher style of it uh the sort of the, the the coldness i guess and again it much like these other films it just feels like you're being invited into a very unique universe and atmosphere and i think another big sure. reason i've seen it so many times is because that score just like hooks you 
every time it just it, it like it's it's so resonant and uh that opening theme like if this film's playing on tv you know that opening theme where you know zuckerberg's walking through the quad uh it's like shit i'm just like drawn into it and um you know i'm there for it one of the reasons why i i do think i enjoy rewatching movies that i don't necessarily love is because your relationship with it can evolve in a way that my relationship with the movies that are on my you know top 10 don't really evolve uh it's you know i like i loved them and then i love them even more and then i love them even more um with the social network i was turned off by the dialogue and then when i went back to it i was able to you know appreciate so much that i missed when when you sense that oh a movie isn't for you you kind of disengage um and then when you know what it is that specifically you had a problem with you're able to see everything else that they're doing and they're doing so much in that movie that is it's just so remarkable and so it's not a surprise to me that like it's become you know considered such a classic sure i mean how do you make a a movie about the creation of facebook entertaining <laughs> and somehow they they did it yeah I, it's interesting that you'd say that about the dialogue because it, it always kind of felt like it takes place in an alternate reality where people just talk like that and they kind of dump you in on the very first scene where there's like a breakup happening at a bar and you're right the dialogue is not realistic coming from you know kind of somebody around that same age as well it's like nobody talks like that but i always figured it was more of uh, an alternate universe than the one that we actually live in oh for for sure and i mean that's the case with every single aaron sorkin you know um movie or episode but i uh I think with, you know, when it comes to the social network, it's just the humor of the characters that, uh, that throws me off. Like when, you know, when, when yeah. their particular attitude and, and when they make jokes and, you know, like one example is, is, uh, the beer bottle exploding twice or whatever. It's just like, mm -hmm. you know, for, for, for <laughs> me, if like I'm not on board with a film's sense of humor, it becomes a huge hurdle for me. And, um, uh, and you know, like the, 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 the sequence of Timberlake, you know, ordering the drinks in the restaurant, <laughs> like there's certain stuff that just feels like, okay, this wasn't written by a young man. <laughs> like, you can, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, again, like, I don't want to be too disparaging because, you know, I, I do think it is a really brilliant film. Um, it, 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 it's just a game that one of the reasons I wanted to talk about these movies is because I just do find it funny, like the you know, the ones that you're more tempted to watch uh, are not always the ones that you like totally, totally love. Let me tell you, when you have a child and you obviously are a new dad, you are going to at some point watch kids films over and over and over again. And it can be painful. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I would be fine with never watching Bolt or never watching Monsters, Inc. or even never watching Toy Story again. If you're a, a Disney fan, it will also ruin certain songs for you when it comes to the Disney musical numbers because you just you watch these things over and over and over again. And it's very rare for me when I can find one that I don't mind being on in the background that when, that my kid's watching. But for my number two, it's not that I don't I don't mind this film, but I legitimately get excited when he watches this film, and that's 2016's Moana. I wasn't born a demigod. I had human parents. They, uh, they took one look and, and decided they did not want me. They threw me into the sea like I was nothing. Somehow, I was found by the gods. 
They gave me the hook. They made me Maui. This is the, the first Polynesian Disney princess. It's about Moana. She's a, a sea voyaging enthusiast who is banned by her father from sailing past the reef. But when her island's sources of food start drying up, she goes on a quest to return the heart of the goddess Tefiti. Uh, unfortunately, there's a demigod named Maui standing in her way. It's based off of uh, Polynesian mythology, but the, the thing that makes Moana so good for me is the music. Like, the songs in this are so good. They're written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who is obviously one of the most famous songwriters now because of Hamilton. Uh, but no matter how many times I hear the songs in Moana, I'm still tapping my toes. I think How Far I'll Go is probably my favorite Disney song ever. I don't think it's the best Disney movie. The Lion King probably takes that for me, but this one is the most rewatchable for me. The Rock is in there as Maui. He's amazing. And even his song, I, I never thought he could sing aside from him like singing Smackdown Hotel on, uh, on the WWF when I was <laughs> younger. Like his song, You're Welcome, is so memorable. The entire cast is great. And for young kids, like, it has some really great messages around redemption and forgiveness and following your passions to find your place in the world. And of course, with an, an animated Disney movie, the animation is spectacular. Yeah. Everything looks so bright and so great. And it takes place in water, which they've just figured out how to do because it looks immaculate. Yeah, Moana. That, that's my number two. I will never get tired of this film. And when my kid's watching it, I sit down and I'll watch it with him. Yeah, it's insanely beautiful. I, I, I remember being blown away watching that in the movie theater. And we listen to that soundtrack all the time, um, you know, long before we had a kid. <laughs> yeah, I think my, my favorite song probably is the one where she discovers all the ships, all the abandoned ships. And uh, it flashes yeah. back to like the, you know, their ancestors and uh, all the different like voyages and uh, I get like shivers every time I I, I hear the, the that song break into its bridge I think but uh, um, yeah one is great well I hope that uh, I hope it's not ruined for you by watching it over and over again when your son is old enough to watch movies yeah I I I hope it'll withstand that as well <laughs> I've found that it does uh, Evan Morgan what's number one on your list of most rewatchable films. All right, well, uh, this is another one that I did not respond to at all the first time that I watched it. And uh, <laughs> and I've seen it so many times since, and it, it came out in 2016 as well. And it is La La Land. I'm not going to that. What? That one's gonna be, no, that one's gonna be. I'm sorry? That will kill me. What? 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 Stop! No! You have to be quiet. If you, you want me, quiet, then you, you have to make quiet. sense. If They're you want me to be quiet, you have to make some goddamn sense. You tell me why They're you're not going. This because, because why? I've been to a million auditions, and the same thing happens every time where I get interrupted because someone wants to get a sandwich, or I'm crying and they start laughing, or there's people sitting in the waiting room and they're and they're like me but prettier <clears> and better at the because maybe I'm not good enough. Yes, you are. No. No, maybe I'm not. Yes, you are. Maybe I'm not. You are. Maybe I'm not. You are. Oh my gosh, La La Land almost made my list, and I chose Mean Girls over it. <laughs> well, it's good. You know, uh, at least it's not redundant. Much like the Social Network, the personality of the movie turned me off. 
the first time I watched it. Again, it's like the the particular sense of humor of the movie and kind of the dialogue at times and um, even the opening sequence with like everybody getting out of their cars and, you know, singing and dancing. I'm all for musicals. I'm, 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 I have no problem getting on board with a musical, but there was something about that that I was like, oh my God, it's like someone just opened up a truckload full of like musical theater students. And it just was so <laughs> assaulting to me. Like, like I was just like, oh shit, I don't, I don't, I, I, it, it, it did not, it was not a promising beginning for me in terms of my relationship with that film <laughs> and sort of, I guess, kind of like sneered at it the first time. Then I think it was just the fact that like, some of those hooks from some of those songs just stuck in my head. And I noticed like we, we started playing the soundtrack the days afterwards. And uh, I started yeah. to really just appreciate the music of the movie and um, the creativity and uniqueness of the, of the songs and the soundtrack. Um, and again, it's such a unique universe, you know, it's familiar. We understand what they're doing, that it's that, you know, that it's a Hollywood and, and from the perspective of these sort of struggling artists, but obviously it's very non-literal and uh, um, it's just got an incredibly unique atmosphere um, assisted by the soundtrack, obviously, you know, it really goes for it. Like it really, really, really goes for it. And you kind of have to respect that. And Rewatching the movie again, knowing the things that would turn me off, like particular lines, the, the the scene with Gosling and his sister is is a pretty good example for me of like a scene where I'm just like, like the, the, that's just not my style. Like the, the the sort of again the very fast paced dialogue, and he's got a kind of a witty you know uh, response to everything that she's suggesting, and you know she's he arrives and then she's out of there, and it's sort of it's, it, the whole thing is kind of very briskly paced and. Uh, it, it it doesn't that that for, that for me doesn't work, <laughs> but what really what really <laughs> works for me is uh, the sequence with like the roommates, you know, and them each wearing a different colored dress and like marching down the street and swaying the dress. Like that shit is is just like immediately iconic and for me so magical. Um, and that sequence, the way that it evolves where she goes to the party and then they have that snow falling, you know, from the party when things start to slow down and everyone jumping into the pool, like there is an undeniable, um, you know, magic and such a kind of infectious spirit to some of the sequences in that film. And I think that's the reason why I have watched it as many times as I've watched it, despite the fact that (laughs) like, it's not my favorite script at all. Like it's not my favorite script, but I, I think that he's just such a incredible, you know, like Whip, whiplash I, I i really really love through and through like i i don't have a single complaint about that movie i think that it is just so well conceived and written um and again extremely rewatchable um and you know the climax of that is just so cinematic and uh rousing um and emotional in a strange way uh with la la land i think it's just more quirky and you know it, it strives to be more humorous and that aspect of it was not endearing to me, but he's just such an incredibly talented, um, you know, filmmaker in terms of the, you know, like infusing that film with a particular spirit, I guess. And um, again, knowing that that collaboration was such a long term collaboration with, you know, his composer and, um, and yeah. there is a real love of, you know, like you can feel the love of old cinema. You can feel the, um, uh, the nostalgia of it. Um, and, uh, and then the sequence at the very end where they, you know, the, 
where things really do sort of like split off into this sort of fantastic realm. You know, she does her audition and then uh, uh, they're reliving all these different things, but on, you know, soundstage, um, like, it's just amazing. Like, like, you know, I'm an asshole if I, if I don't like give it up for something like that, because it is so bold, <laughs> such a huge risk, particularly when your profile is, is, you know, uh, has just been so elevated by the success of your previous movie. Um, and, uh, and it really does kind of move me now when I watch that film in a way that I never would have guessed it would. Fantastic pick great movie we've probably seen this yeah i mean this could have easily made my list it's since my wife has seen it it's become one of her favorite movies soundtrack is constantly on in my house the second that i see it pop up on netflix i'm just like oh, okay well i guess i'm gonna rewatch uh la la land now my number one i had to go with an action film i'm an action movie junkie and i i almost kind of cheated with this because there's two films that take place one after another and so I'm just going to throw them both in there at number one because I, I just can't choose between the two. It's the Raid series, starting from 2011, The Raid Redemption, and its sequel, The Raid 2. Have you seen these I movies? haven't. You know what? They've been on my queue forever, and uh, um, I've, I've never watched them, and I'm embarrassed to admit it. But it's partly because uh, oh. my partner's just not down. <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is one that, I, that my wife will not watch with me. Uh, but... Like, I'm an action movie junkie, and these are two of the best action films that I've ever seen. The Raid Redemption has a terrible title, but it's an awesome movie. It's an Indonesian movie, and so everything's subtitled, but there's not a whole lot of dialogue. It's basically the SWAT team that apparently doesn't seem to know a thing about tactical advantages, but they storm this apartment complex, and they're there for one guy. It's run by this mobster, and once they get into this apartment complex, they basically lock them in, and he puts a bounty on the heads of the SWAT team, and this entire building full of killers and thugs descends on this team. But it has some of the best action scenes I've ever seen, and it really put the star, Iko Uwais, who plays Rama, as somebody on my radar. In the, in the film, he has a personal stake in this raid, but in real life, he's a national champion of Silat, which is an extremely brutal Indonesian martial art. And it really shows in this film. Like, there is an incredible weight to the hits. And some of the deaths are, like, straight-up grotesque. It's got one of the best hallway fight scenes. This side of, like, the, um, the hallway fight scene in the Netflix show Daredevil and also in Old Boy. Just so good. And then I, I threw The Raid 2 in there, too, because The Raid 2 starts literally directly after the movie and continues the saga, and it ups the ante in every single way. It has one of my favorite fight scenes of all time in the climax, features an awesome car chase. I find myself going back just to watch different fight scenes. Like, if I'm in the mood to see a fight scene, I'll jump on YouTube or I throw in the disc and I'll just fast forward to whatever fight scene that is because they're so impressive. Mm -hmm. Fun fact, I saw both of these in theaters, and both times I was the only person in the theater. <laughs> like, I, I, I guess they just hadn't caught on yet or, or what, but yeah, I watched them both times. I had the whole theater, theater to myself. Uh, just fantastic fight scenes, and uh, I can't get enough of the Raid series. Well, I got to get to them. I'm sure, uh, based on you know everything that you've said, I'm sure I would love them. <laughs> 
Oh, Evan Morgan, great list. Uh, thanks for, for coming with the heat on most rewatchable films. Where can people see more of your work? Like aside from The Kid Detective, which listeners, Kid Detective, you got to go see it. Uh, if you want to read my review, it's on the site right now, but just go watch The Kid Detective. It's so damn good. Firstly, thank you for the plug there. And um, I, uh, The Dirties, which is a film that I co-wrote and produced and edited um, several years ago, is uh, available, I believe, you know, on iTunes, possibly Netflix in the U.S. I don't know if it's still there. Um, you can you can find it. It's sort of similar to The Kid Detective in the sense that it starts with quite a lot of lever- levity and becomes progressively darker, deals with, uh, you know, an unexpectedly dark subject, um, but in a humorous way. And uh, uh, and then I my short film uh, from, you know, a few years ago, A Pretty Funny Story, uh, which tonally is very similar to The Kid Detective. Um, it's another sort of straight-faced, dark comedy. Um, that is, I believe, available on iTunes. Yeah, The Dirties is available on uh, Amazon Prime right now, too, and Shudder. Oh, right on. Very cool. Well, I tell you what, man, I cannot wait to see what you come up with next. I'm very excited about the career you have ahead oh, of thank you. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate it. Listeners, if you want to be a guest on the Force 5 podcast, the only requirements are that you love movies and want to talk about them. Come up with some interesting top five list topics and head to the website force5podcast.com for the show request form. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform and follow the Force 5 podcast on Instagram and Twitter so you can tell me which picks we missed. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and watch The Kid Detective over and over and over and over and over.